everyone. Thank you so much for joining me. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. I am a registered nurse that has worked most of my career with elders in hospice care, which is end-of-life care, and also in oncology, which is cancer care. And most of you know that I have been I just, you know, working on this movement with education and something called end-of-life doula, death doula training. Um, I have an organization company named Doula Givers, and we do a lot of free education and outreach all over the world, and we have trained doulas from all over the world. Um, this is a wonderful new profession that's taking the planet by storm and supporting people all over, and we are here to help do that in any way that we can. So one of the things that is really important right now is getting out the education to what an end-of-life doula is. and. This is why we have this podcast, Ask a Death Doula. We also have a YouTube channel, Ask a Death Doula. We will be answering all your questions from patients, from families, from people in the community. We'll be telling stories. I'll be interviewing doulas, interviewing families, interviewing experts that work in end of life. So it should be a wonderful educational forum, someplace safe that you can go on a weekly basis to ask questions um, because this can change everything for the better um, for end of life for your loved ones and friends and even ourselves. So thank you so much for joining Ask a Death Doula. Enjoy the episode. Hi everyone and welcome to Ask a Death Doula. In this episode, I am going to be addressing some viewer questions, which is one of my favorite aspects of doing Ask a Death Doula, really the original concept, because I get emails and phone calls and from people all over the world who are either caring for their loved ones, sometimes even curious for themselves, and also from a lot of people that are in the practice of helping people as they age and at end of life. And so if we can come together with a forum where people from everywhere can tune in and collectively get the answers and education, that's fantastic. We're really lifting up this profession. So on this episode, I'm going to be answering a few of the questions that have come in for Ask a Death Doula. I hope you enjoy, and we'll see you in a minute. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Ask a Death Doula. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. On this episode, we are going to be answering questions from viewers that have come in. Again, Ask a Death Doula is your forum, so I ask that you please send any questions, comments, or even stories you would like to share regarding end of life to askadeathdoula at gmail.com. We also will have a Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, hashtag askadeathdoula. Let's really support one another worldwide in this movement. Okay, so we're going to answer some questions today. So the first one comes from Rihanna in Bay Area, California. And she wrote me a beautiful email that said she has listened to two of my webinars so far and enjoyed them very much. Um, what she's most excited about is that we are building a movement with a strong vision about conscious dying, and she is most interested in being part of this movement. She goes on to say that she is a hospice volunteer, which is thank you so much for doing that. That's absolutely wonderful. That she had a beautiful end-of-life experience with her mother that she's like to share, and that's, again, the part of sharing on these podcasts and together is letting us you know, take the veil off of death and the fear surrounding it so that we can all really support one another in an area the last hundred years has been closeted and people don't even know the first thing about what end of life looks like. And that has created this unwarranted fear surrounding death, which has led to so much suffering for people that we we have to just get back to the basics and to the natural end of life being a natural part of the life cycle. And also let's share stories of how it went well, because I'm always studying what are the elements that make an end of life go well for a family and a patient? And what are the elements that did not have it go well for that patient and that family? And there's definitely things that we can do and put in place to have it go well. And doesn't everyone deserve that? They sure do. 
So Rihanna had a beautiful end-of-life experience with her mother, and I hope that she will share that with us. Maybe I'll even have her on the show, um, but I'll definitely read her. She, she wrote an essay regarding what it was like, and that's exactly what we need to do is share those experiences. So for Rihanna's question, she wrote, I read on your bio page about your trip to Zimbabwe, Africa, to explore their approach to death. This sounds most interesting. Do you have any more reflections on that experience? And so I really, you know, when I read this, I was um, grateful, obviously, that she commented on that because it's such a pivotal point of my life's journey. But also the interesting um, sentence there that you went to Zimbabwe to explore their approach to death, and that was really not what I was doing. I And I want to share this Zimbabwean trip. And actually, it's the foundation and birth of my doula givers program, which is very special, obviously. And I credit these amazing people with, you know, giving me this ability for this concept of doula work. Um, And it's through that experience in Zimbabwe where it all happened. So I went to Zimbabwe, Africa in 2012 on a self-paid humanitarian volunteer trip to do hospice work with um, hospice over in Zimbabwe. Why did I do this? Well, I was doing hospice nursing work here in the United States and knew how very important this area of care is and also how really neglected this area of care is that people are not understanding hospice care. They're not utilizing it to its fullest. Um, And we're not talking about death as a natural part of the life cycle in our society at all. So a lot of work to do here in the United States, but we are privileged to have access to medications, to access to medical assessments, access to equipments. Um, meaning again, you know, obviously you can get that anywhere, but hospice care is, is great in the respect that they help to support people to be at the end of life at home where nine out of 10 people want to be. And all of that equipment and support comes to the house, which is a really big thing at the end of life because you're so weak and so much is going on to have everything delivered. And those nuances of, you know, having, medical equipment, meaning maybe somebody needs a wheelchair or a walker or even a hospital bed. At the end of life, even a hospital bed is so vitally important for moving the patient up and down, um, being able to turn them, to bathe them for comfort, and the medications. If there's one medication that I would need at end of life, if I could only choose one, it would be that liquid morphine, which is also known as Roxanol. Why? Because it helps with pain and you do not have to have the ability to swallow to utilize liquid morphine. It goes into, it's called sublingual. It goes into the cheek of the mouth and gets absorbed through the membranes. So it is effective for people who have lost their swallowing ability, which is very, very common part of end of life. And it also helps with breathing issues. And breathing issues and pain are both usually present at the end of life. So if you can give me one medication, it would be liquid morphine can really change that end of life experience for the better. But we have this in America, but other countries are not privileged to have these supplies. So I was doing hospice work in the United States and I really got involved with the education aspect of it, free community outreach, trying to you know teach the level one The concept of hospice is that the hospice nurse will manage the care of that dying patient, but teach the loved ones how to do the care. And that's where I feel like the big disconnect and breakdown is because the the fear of death is so prevalent that it prevents me from being able to teach things to people, but also the late amount of time that people are coming on hospice does not allow for me to be able to fully teach them how to care for their loved one. And that combined with the amount of time that I'm actually as a hospice nurse able to be at the bedside of that patient and with that family. Now, if patients were stable, meaning there was nothing actively happening, even though they had an end-of-life process, my visits would be once a week for about an hour. Once a week for about an hour So within that visit, I'm supposed to do my physical assessment, 
change any of the care plan that needed to be changed, but also I am supposed to be doing teaching on each visit. Well, I have to tell you that people are not on the hospice program for very long usually. And so if I'm there once a week for an hour, um, if they are on for an average of 20 days or 21 days, let's just say 21, that's three weeks, that's three hours of nursing time. You can't teach people how to take care of somebody at end of life, coupled with the fear associated with it. It's just that's the breakdown in the system. So what I did was I came up with the structure to teach how to care for someone at end of life before anyone ever needed it, you know, before we're faced and confronted with an end of life process. So that's my doula givers level one end of life doula training. And so I went out and I would teach this at the local library. And what would happen is people came, they came in droves, you know, the local newspaper would write an article and all of a sudden the people would be coming in 50, 70 people on a Saturday to learn about this skill, which is really just exciting and empowering for the movement. And so as I'm doing this free education advocacy, I talked with a friend of mine that I've been friends with about 35 years. And he said, you know, our mutual friend, Norman, that you know, does charity work for an organization that supplies and supports hospices in Africa and went on to tell me about the great, obviously the great need for support and care in those countries in Africa. And so I met with our mutual friend, Norman, and I think that within you know, within the first few sentences that he was telling me about um, the plight of people in these countries and what they were going through and the lack of support they had, I said, I'm in. You know, what do you need for me and how can I help? So to go over a few of the things that he said, well, the average age of a woman's life expectancy is 42 in Africa. And there were seven-year-old children taking care of dying parents, seven-year-old children. Hmm. Something that just boggles my mind um, that they're going through, first of all, their babies, you know, within themselves, and then they're caring for dying parents, but they're also caring for them without, again, the luxury of the support that we have in this country with supplies, medication, and all of the wonderful different things that we have. So, he told me about this. And so what I did was I contacted an organization um, that was he was working with and that was really reputable, helping to supply, um, I think in three different countries over there, helping to supply hospices and partnering. And so I started to, I sponsored them and did some, donated some funds for, you know, um, events they were having. And then did one myself for them. So I did, and it's interesting because somebody just recently talked to me about doing a fundraiser for, because we just got the International Doula Givers Foundation um, approved by uh, the official 501c3. Very exciting in October of 2017. And, you know, there's a whole long list of things that go along with getting nonprofits going and it's very exciting, but it's also very daunting and it's a new area for me to, to learn. But, you know, what we can achieve with nonprofit and helping people is really what we're based on in our mission. Um, they said, have you thought about doing a fundraiser? And it just, I went, oh my goodness, because I did a fundraiser for this organization and it is a lot of work. You know, it's putting on a major event. Um, so yes, obviously fundraisers are great to do, but they're, you know, like putting on any other huge event that you would have, you know, a huge anniversary party or a wedding or whatever. There's just so many elements to it. But I did, I went ahead and put, and I remember it was in May and, um, I put a lot of effort and a lot of stress and a lot of love into this event and it was beautiful. You know, at the end of, at, at the end of it, it was so rewarding and so many people showed up and, I just really felt good about um, what we had achieved collectively to donate to 100% of the donation went to the hospice um, for Africa, which was great. So very rewarding. Um, so, you know, after doing this, the 
the head of the organization, you know, said a few times to me, you need, you need to come, you need to come to Zimbabwe and meet the people. You need to come to Africa and meet the people. And they were working with an organization in Zimbabwe and they were, were a hospice in Zimbabwe and they were working with two um, hospices in South Africa. And he said, you need to come, you need to meet the people. And I've heard just how lovely, you know, beautiful everyone was over there. But I was, you know, I don't have a lot of money at the time. I'm kind of, you know, working single mom, working, um, you know, as a full-time nurse. But when my son was headed off to college, I said to myself, you know, this is something that I can do for me. This is something that I can plan to do for me. And that's what I did. In September of 2012, he went off to college and I planned on going to Africa and do this self-paid trip to go out with the hospice team, the social workers, the nurses, and really look through their eyes. And I knew that that probably would not be an open invitation um, ongoing because you never know what's going to happen with organizations or political climate or whatever it may be. So I just thought what a beautiful opportunity to really, again, look through someone else's eyes. And so I have to tell you honestly that my my mom was um, not thrilled. Zimbabwe at the time had a very, um, you know, unsettling climate politically in the country. And um, but I had known people that had went on this trip, and they said as long as you stay with, you know, the people that you're with, that you should be fine. And so again, um, my agreement with my family was, with my mom in particular, was that if I stayed with Phil the whole time, the person that I was going with, if I didn't go anywhere on my own, that I stayed with him the whole time that, and went with him and came back with him, that, that that would be fine. And of course, believe me, you know, I'm in my 40s at the time and I'm not going to let my parents dictate if I can or cannot do something. However, there's, a, there's an element to me emphasizing with her anxiety over that. And it's not completely unfounded. So to make a compromise was something that obviously I think we should all compromise on things was very willing to do. So that's what I said. I said, absolutely, I'll do that. Um, you know, it didn't, it, did, it allowed for a more of just a complete work trip, but I really didn't have the funds to go on any excursions at the time anyway. So it sort of worked out fine. So I went over there and, um, you know, hearing about the circumstance and plight of people is different than experiencing it. And so when I did go over to Africa, and I remember going to, um, we went to South Africa first in the airport. It's an international airport in Johannesburg. And then we took a smaller plane to Zimbabwe. When we went to the terminal to get on the smaller plane, the energy was just different. And when we got on this plane and went to Zimbabwe, it was completely different. So we got off of the, the flight and, um, there was like a silence. It was, it was very, it was a bit eerie. And when we walked into the terminal, there were just men with machine guns, with steel eyes, um, very, very, very silent and cold. And yeah. So it didn't exactly set me up feeling very comfortable. Although, you know, I have a tremendous amount of faith and I had done my research. So here we were, and we were going to really just hope for the best. And so we went out and we got our bags and we went out and the medical director of what is known as Island Hospice uh, met us in the front with this beautiful smile, and he said, welcome to Zim. And so that felt really good. And then we got in his car, and we headed towards, actually, uh, Phil wanted, now, you have to remember, we've been on a flight for about 24 hours between traveling and waiting for flights and then getting the connecting flight, and now it's morning time in Zimbabwe at about 10 o'clock, and he said, you don't mind if we go right to the office, right, and start working. And I said, absolutely not. You have, to, you have to be flexible. So we went right to the office, and we went to Island Hospice in Harare, and that's the capital of Zimbabwe. And there were just so many nice people, and Phil goes a lot. So he was there every month or every other month, probably every other month, um, and just lovely people greeting him and being introduced to. And here we were. 
And then when we went to, I was staying with the medical director um, in his home in, in Harare. And I remember when we got to his home, he had these very big fences up where you could not see his home. And you heard a pack of dogs growling and barking um, where, oh my goodness, I love dogs. So thank goodness. But what was going on there? And he turned to me and he said, you're not afraid of dogs, are you? And I said, no. And he said, good. So he had seven German shepherds that on reflection now um, were protecting, you know, the house, were protecting um, the surroundings. And boy, if you heard the way they barked you or growled, you would uh, think twice before entering his home territory. And so they would bark periodically all through the night with this, but I felt safe because my goodness, there were seven of these very intimidating dogs there. So we, you know, we went inside and he had, um, you know, he had a great, obviously authority over the dogs. So they were, you know, usually held in their section. It was not an issue. And one of the other things that was very interesting about this trip is that the electricity for Zimbabwe cannot supply the entire country at once. So you would have these electric outages just on the daily all the time. Like people would be going to set up to cook for dinner and all of a sudden the lights would go out. And at nighttime, now you're in pitch black darkness. So everyone would just retreat to their quarters, their bedroom, and you're basically in for the night. You know, you're down for the night. So that was something that was a bit interesting to me. And, um, you know, there are just several other things, you know, just different ways that people live and how privileged, again, we are to be here. So when I, the next day, go to the office and um, I'm talking to the nurses and the social workers and I'm able to go out on visits with them. So the first visit I went on was to what's called the high density areas. And for you and me, that would be an urban city. And I remember going in the car with the nurse and um, just noting the piles of garbage the mounds of garbage that were just aligning the roads um, until we got to our visit, the urban area. And, you know, obviously the smells that were there and different um, other things that you see. It's so true that you don't appreciate fully what you have until you go somewhere else where they just are not lucky enough to have what we have. So this was one of those examples and, um, you know, it was a a big eye opener. So we went on some visits with individual families in the high density area. And that was really, I mean, everyone was so open and gracious and appreciative. And right now at this time in 2012, when I was in Zimbabwe, um, I was told that the present government had, Um, unfortunately, you know, burnt down all the farms and I, I, I'm not sure, you know, you can use your own, you can use your own, um, imaging to, to see why such things do happen, but they had burnt down all the economy and the farms and, uh, it was in dire straits at this time. People didn't have enough food. There was no work. So you're dealing with working with people with an end of life process and still just struggling to have their daily um, needs met. So it was really, really difficult because people were hungry and every day they would pack me a sandwich and a bottle of water that was about the eight or 12 ounces. Um, And every day I'd give that sandwich away because you would be going on these visits and they speak Shauna there. That's the language that they speak there. There's all these different dialects in Africa and they're very hard to actually learn. So Magwanani, that's, um, I practice and practice and practice. And the woman who would take care of the office for Island Hospice, she would give me little language lessons every day. I have to say I wasn't very good, but, um, it's very difficult, but I, I got Magwanani and that means good morning. And what we, we do is we'd go a lot of some people, you know, a lot of people do speak English, but a lot of people do not. And so they would go out, I would go out with a nurse, social worker, and they would translate for me. 
And so, um, you know, we would go to these visits and they would translate and they would tell their stories and let the nurse know what was happening in their journey. And she would translate to me and one after the other, it was just so heartbreaking and devastating. And then on top of it, they're hungry. So anyway, of course I'd give my sandwich away every day because I would be um, coming back to a meal that night, but it just, it's hard to conceive that people are going through this, but they are. So we went to the high density area and we went to a few visits, but then Tandao, and I want to give a, a hello and a thank you to all the people at Island Hospice and everyone who was just so gracious um, and loving towards me there and, and taught me so much. So Tando, Connie, Floyd, Bodemi, um, you know, it was, and everyone that worked there was really just such a great trip. So we went to, um, she, she said, I want to take you somewhere. This is Tendow. And she's, 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 okay. So we get in the car and we drive a little bit in the high density area and she stops the car at this place with these metal gates. Um, and when I mean metal, like a tin sliding gate w that was bent and dented where, you know, I didn't really know what we were doing. Anyway, she, she knocks on the door and the, um, somebody comes and unlocks it and then, and they greet her with a, you know, a warm hello. And then we go into this building that is all cement. And if you had told me that this building was unoccupied, there was a, unfortunately there was a, a stench there and there was nothing inside the building, maybe like one chair, but it was all just, just brick, um, or just, um, you know, cement. If you told me that this was an unoccupied building, I would have absolutely hundred percent believed you, but it wasn't, it was an organization called, I believe it was called, um, the dawn of a new day or morning dawn. And I'm going to put the links to these organizations, um, in the podcast description below for you. And there was a man there and what they did was this was an organization who worked with children, very young children, a place, it was like a community center. So young children could go be cared for, get some education and, um, really beautiful. So he had, he had those big sheets of paper where, um, he wrote down, uh, what they were working on and they would put a, a big piece of paper against the wall, tape the wall. That was kind of like their, their project management business meetings. And, you know, one of it was tuberculosis and, and obviously HIV control and AIDS control is a big thing. And he was explaining to me what they do there. And it was, he was so proud and so passionate about the work they did. And that just moves me beyond belief when people are just passionate about what they do. And then they took me outside and there was, unbeknownst to me, there was a class going on. And so they took me around the side of the building and there was this grandmother figure who was there and they had picnic tables and they had rows and rows of these absolutely adorable children that were about five years and under that were being taught by this grandmother figure. And they introduced me, he told me what they were doing and they introduced me and the, the children just kind of stared at me. So yeah, they just kind of stared at me and, um, you know, in Zimbabwe, they speak Shana, that's the language. And so it's actually very difficult language to learn. So most of the time they would translate for me in English, obviously, if people did not speak English and, um, these little ones, they only spoke Shana. And so I was trying to find a way to connect with them somehow, you know, really just, supportive of, you know, them coming and being in school and, and all of that. So I, I wanted to kind of come up with a universal symbol of some sort when I was saying goodbye or leaving. And so I kind of gave a thumbs up, no reaction. Um, and then as I was leaving, I gave, I just blew them a kiss, like a little kiss and the squeals of laughter and the giggles of all those little ones. It was just something that would warm your heart to hear. It was just really beautiful. But the work they were doing there and the support with, again, almost nothing, you know, like in a, in a brick building that really had nothing in it, but the passion behind supporting a community um, and seeing it in action and the, the pride that this man had who ran the, the um, community center. So again, I'll put those links down below for that in, um, 
you can you can look them up on their social media if they have it or their website or whatever information, which is great. So we traveled through the high density, and that was one of my first days there. And then there were times that, you know, I'd be in the office, obviously working with the nurses and the social workers, and then have a chance to go out with individuals on their daily visits. And the other thing that we did, I went out with Bodemi. They work in a clinic in Chiquaca um, at least once a week, and they bring as many supplies as they can. So this is a established already medical building that they would get a room, I don't know, it might have been a room six by six, very, very tiny. And they'd go out from Island Hospice and they'd bring out supplies as best they could. And people would travel on foot for miles and miles to get five minutes with a nurse in this room. And they'd sit for hours out in the waiting room. It was just unbelievable. And one after the other, people would come in and they tell their stories and Bodemi would translate to me and just one after the other about hardship. And and no one's saying it. The people are not coming in feeling sorry for themselves and saying it. They're saying it just because that's their story. And with what I'm telling you, do you have any medicine that can help that or any supplies that can help that? So really intense, again, to hear one after the other people, but the, the gratitude um, that people had that we were just taking the time to listen and to be there. And I think it goes back to people want to be seen and they want to be heard truly. Seen and heard is medicine that is so powerful in and of itself. So let's remember that because that is something that I practice here in the United States to truly, as a, as a practitioner, to see and to hear somebody especially at end of life, put down the computer, put down the documentation and listen and tune in to that person to see what you're picking up and what they need um, is the best medicine that we can practice. So there was this one girl who came in and I'll, I'll put her name as Lucy. That's not her real name. Um, and she came in and she was about 12 years old and she sat down in the chair and did not make eye contact with either one of us, but she told her story and in Shauna and the weight, the weight of pain. Um, I didn't know what she was saying, but I knew that it was just so full of pain and emotion. And so then Bodemi turned to me and he translated and he said that, um, that this young woman came in and that her father had raped her and gave her HIV. Her mother had died already of AIDS and um, she had been um, just, she had told on her father. So that's something, again, that's not very common. It's more of a male dominant society. And, she, but she had told on her father for the rape and then, she was living with the maternal grandmother. Her her father's side of the family had shunned her. And her grandmother was caring for her. And her grandmother had congestive heart failure now and was having a... She had worked in fields um, to make money, but now she was not able to because she couldn't breathe. She had shortness of breath. And now they were starving and they had nothing. And again, this, this girl now has HIV. Um, so they were in dire straits. So... There's something called meal. It's a powder substance that's in a bag. And uh, Bodemi had a, a bag of that in his car and he went, because they were hungry, he went to get that. And I guess you mix that with a little bit of water and it puffs up and at least you can fill your stomach with it. Oh my goodness. You know, to imagine that people go through this and how much we have is just, we have to be so grateful all the time for what we have. So he gave her a bag of meal, but, um, you know, where were they going to go from this point forward? The grandmother can no longer work. They can no longer make money. And so now they were hungry and starving and the grandmother was, you know, not well. Um, you know, just tragic hearing these stories. So we were able to set something up for her. We got permission from the Island Hospice Organization and we were able to fund, um, buying her grandmother a sewing machine and material supplies that she could make things and sell at a flea market 
sitting in a chair. And that was something before I left that I was able to donate and secure that really felt great because, again, you give somebody something where they can be self-sufficient to an extent. And it was, it was wonderful. So, you know, we, we like to obviously do these type of things wherever we can. Um, it's what we should do for one another. So, you know, that hopefully brought a little bit of, a little bit of, um, happiness to this situation that to me is, is just unbearable to hear. So one after the other people would come in this clinic and tell stories. And you can see these pictures. I have a Facebook page that's called Lighten Up Hospice Advocacy, where I posted all the pictures from Zimbabwe on there. And they're really just beautiful. So people would travel and, you know, Bodemi would sit there for 10 hours just without a break, without water, just seeing one person after the other and helping as best that he could. Um, and again, you know, just so appreciative, the people that were, were doing the trip. So we would go on these different days and I'd go out with nurses and I'd go out with social workers and we'd go to different areas. And I remember that Norman told me um, also that to remember, because he had been to Zimbabwe years before and done the same type of trip, to tell me not to forget that the people who work there, the people that are the nurses and the social workers, don't have a whole bunch either. And so a lot of times they were hungry as well. It's like unbelievably mind-blowing. So um, to be able to you know, extend some nice courtesy to the hospitality that they were doing by maybe giving a luncheon or whatever we could do was something that we wanted to keep in mind. And yet you would forget that because these are people that are going out caring for others. You'd forget that maybe they don't have three meals a day on, on available to them either. So it was just the awareness was all over that we saw. Um, and then, you know, on our excursion, so we would be traveling out there were at least two different times that there were police barricades on the highway, on the roads, and they would just pull you over and they would, you know, the police person would come and say something in Shauna and ask to see your license and then take it and walk away from the car. Um, and again, you know, we're, I'm in the United States and a lot of us are not really familiar with some ways that other countries work, but they would just um, tell you that you had something wrong with your car, take your license, go away, and then ask for cash to get your car back. And I told you that, you know, there's not a lot of money that's available. So, you know, $20 to people is a enormous amount of money, but obviously if you can't, if you cannot use your car, then you're in trouble. So that was a couple of things that went on there, which was pretty tough. Um, and the whole trip was just, just so powerful in, in every aspect, but going to a country that has, again, limited amount of resources, has a very high end of life population at a much younger year that we want to be able to understand that and help. So this is where the doula givers and the doula concept for me really flourished. So I'd been doing end-of-life education for a long time, going out, teaching those level ones. Um, but And also I've always made that analogy between end-of-life and also with the birthing of babies. So there's so many similarities, yet we prepare for the birth of the baby from literally day one, sometimes even before somebody's pregnant. You know, we prepare, we educate, we put things in place, we anticipate what we might need. Um, we don't do any of that for end of life, yet it needs the same kindness, support, education, and all of that. So the doula concept, the doula is a Greek word that means non-medical person who gives physical, emotional, and spiritual support to someone else. And it's beautiful with the birthing of babies. You bring in this guide, so to speak, this person who can hold the space and guide you along, guide your family along on what's going to happen and what's taking place with that birth, with the pregnancy, with the actual active labor, with the birth of that baby, and even 
after the baby's born to be there to help you. Well, the same now, we are going to bring that concept to end of life, death doula, end of life doula, to have these non-medical people come in and guide that person, that family, through the journey of end of life from the time of terminal diagnosis, through that period, through the death process of actively dying, through the actual death, and even after. Okay. The support and what is going on with an end of life experience does not end when that person stops breathing, when there's an actual death. There's a whole bunch of energy and things that have to go on after that, especially to start the detachment, the separation, the starting of bereavement, um, which we're not giving education and support on at all either. So to bring this concept in was something that I learned really to call it doula in Zimbabwe because they were, they didn't have the resources as I've talked about. They didn't have the amount of medication and supplies that we are privileged to have here and in most countries or in a lot of countries, but they were taking a neighbor and training that neighbor to sit with the family of the person who was dying and care for them for hours on end like a doula like a doula. And I thought, that's it. That's what we need to bring back to America. We need to bring back a doula concept. We need to put a program together. We need to train people before they ever need it. So the time to learn these skills is not when somebody gets a terminal diagnosis in your household. Why? Because again, the fear component attached to the end of life process blocks you and prevents you from taking knowledge in. And this is a life skill. This is something that we are all going to use. Now, even whether you are using this as far as you're being the hands-on person that's going to be doing the hands-on care for somebody, even having the knowledge of the education will completely change that experience for you and the person because you will know that, oh, this is the shock phase. Okay, I, I can identify. This is the withdrawal. This is what somebody's going through. And this is what I can do to be a supportive presence or even like going to where somebody's actually heading into a transition phase. Oh, they're talking about being visited by loved ones who have already passed before. They're heading into their transition phase. They are going to be saying goodbye to us very soon. So whether or not you're doing exactly the hands-on care for you to have that unbelievably empowering knowledge um, will serve you so well to be able to be more present and be supportive and even to teach people in your family what's going on so that they can know as well because right now we're at a total loss for end-of-life support and education. So it's this concept from the people in Zimbabwe of being present at the bedside and training. And again, it was very powerful for me to have somebody train that was not a family member. Somebody who was objective, somebody who could see who was not drawn in emotionally because sometimes you're too close to something that you don't see it in its clarity. And also, um, for me, I really want family to be able to be present and not have to be consumed with all of the tasking, so to speak. So it's great to have an objective person come in and sort of like manage that whole case and guide that whole case and see what each person's position is within that end of life process and how they're doing and then directly relating to that individual going through. Because you might have, you know, five people that are in involved in this case of the dying mother and all five people having different experiences and needing different support. So the doula comes in and objectively is able to assess the needs of each one of those people and help to make them have the best um, education and support with this end of life process. So really powerful. So thank you to Island Hospice and the people of Zimbabwe who were so gracious in obviously taking me under their wing and allowing me to look through their eyes of the incredible, incredible work that they do for people um, without having the resources that they fully, fully need. And I could never do it. I don't think that I could ever be a hospice nurse 
um, under those circumstances without having, you know, the support of all the things that I have to be able to help families. So I give them so much credit. They are complete angels uh, in what they do. And it's really important for us to remember to always pay things forward. So for us in the United States, we are so blessed and lucky to be able to have what we have that when we come across a, you know, a sister organization like Island Hospice to be able to, whatever we can do to help them, you know, whether it's uh, supplies that we have, you know, we have sent uh, medicines to them, if we can give them equipment, if we can do some monetary support, you know, whatever we can do. And even obviously hearing and seeing them and commending them for the amazing work they do. So thank you for birthing, um, the doula concept for myself and for, you know, allowing me to then have the awareness that how powerful it is just your presence and building out a company like doula givers, and Doula Giver's first program was end-of-life doula training, and I certify end-of-life doulas from all over. We have a great online program that you can access from all over. And now we have elder care doulas dealing with the um, doula work for not necessarily somebody who's end-of-life, but for people in their elder years with a holistic model of care. And we also have Doula Giver care consultants. So those are people who go out and help specifically with end-of-life organization and planning, meaning your advanced directives, meaning your living situations, where you would want to be, how do you achieve that, helping people to pick healthcare proxies and having family meetings, mediating family meetings, which is a huge part of having a positive end-of-life experience. So to wrap up today and the question that we had, I would say that it wasn't so much going to Zimbabwe to see how they do end of life and learn from them. That wasn't the focal point. It was really to go there and to help them to actually see what, um, what they are up against, what they are doing for it, and actually to help them in any way that we can to support making the situation better for them. So again, the question that we addressed today on Ask a Death Doula was from Rihanna in the Bay Area of California. So thank you so much for sending this in. She said, I read your bio page about your trip to Zimbabwe to explore their approach to death. And I feel that there are going to be wonderful countries that we're going to and cultures that we're going to absolutely explore the way that they do death because some people do it much better. And I love to obviously connect us all on a, this global topic um, and learn from people who might be doing something that has a much more positive impact and incorporating that. And then when we share other areas of the world that are having, because we all know that we're going to have a death experience, you know, that's something that's completely guaranteed. And when there are areas in the world that need more support for their their own people to be able to have um, a better end of life, we need to reach out to them and see what we can do to help them. So this trip to Zimbabwe was really to go out and to support the hospice there to um, obviously in any way, shape, or form that we can raise awareness and, and help them to incorporate and get materials to have more supplies for their high-end population. And that's what we did in Zimbabwe. But I walked away with so much more than I could ever, ever give them. Um, in fact, you know, just the, the concept that I built doula givers off of that trip is I am so eternally grateful to all of them there, to all the people that were so nice to me. And just an amazing, amazing um, community. So I'd like to say thank you again. And I will link down Island Hospice and also the um, Dawn Center, the new Dawn Center for the little ones in that community that I talked about. And anything that you can do. And if you just want to look them up, that would be fantastic. I encourage you, please, to always send your questions, any question that you may have, any comment. And if there's a story that you'd like to share on our show about end of life, a positive or even a not positive experience that you've had so that we can learn what to do differently in the future, please do that. So send anything to you, askadeathdoula at gmail.com 
Also, we will have Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at askadeathdoula.com. Thank you so much for joining me today. My name is Suzanne O'Brien. Enjoy your week, everyone. Ask a Death Doula has been brought to you by Doula Givers, the new non-medical area of healthcare, and the International Doula Givers Foundation, bringing free education, supplies, and training programs to communities worldwide in the hopes to have everyone have a better end-of-life experience everywhere.